Hey, church family, I'm so glad to be with you today. We are kicking off a brand new series called Playlist 2020, in which we're going to take a look at some of the psalms from Scripture. Now, psalms are ancient prayers put to music or put to song. And through these psalms, we are going to discover how it is that we can process our emotions in a healthy way with God through prayer. Now, the reason we're calling it Playlist 2020 is, I don't know about you, but at least for me, 2020 uh, has included a wide range of emotions, including sadness, anger, confusion, frustration, and many, many more. And I get the sense that you're in the same boat. I believe that this series will have a powerful impact in your life as we strive to live as disciples of Jesus and as we strive to process our emotions in ways that lead to our flourishing and ultimately lead to God's glory. And so I want to invite you on this journey. I would encourage you. There may be others in your life that you can invite to take this journey with us as well. Whether uh, they're familiar with who Jesus is or not, I believe that this series will make a powerful influence in their life as well. So I'd encourage you just to even be thinking about who it is that you can invite to join you uh, for some of our online services through this series. Now today, we are going to look at how it is that we process our anger. Now anger, especially in this culture, is almost everywhere. Everywhere you look, pretty much, you can find anger. In fact, anger has been somewhat commodified in the American culture. In fact, uh, we even have superheroes that feed off of anger. The anger empowers them to do good, strong, mighty works. Anger is pretty much everywhere we look, and for many of us, it's a very present reality for us, even right now, as we look at what's going on in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our community, in our nation, and all around the world. And so as we look to the Psalms together today, we're going to ask this question. What do you do with your anger? What do you do when you're angry? How is it that you can process your anger in healthy ways that lead to your flourishing and God's glory? And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Psalm 44. And through this Psalm, we are going to discover and find a guide as to how it is that we can process our anger, what we do with our anger. Uh, but before we do that, I know that for many of us, uh, we're still in the process of trying to figure out who Jesus is. Still, many others of us are new to following Jesus. And for probably the majority of us, we're not quite sure how it is to even read and engage with the Psalms. And so what we're going to do now is just take a moment and watch a video by The Bible Project as they give us an overview understanding of how it is that we can engage in the Psalms. Take a look at this. We've been talking about poetry in the Bible, how biblical poets love design and masterfully use metaphor and symbolism. These poems invite us into an experience to ponder ideas slowly and from many angles. And the largest collection of poetry in the Bible is the book of Psalms. So that's what we're going to look at here. 
Now, the Israelites composed lots of poetry throughout their history. Yeah, poems were written by Israelites, sages, kings, and prophets. Some poems were sung by choirs in the Jerusalem temple, while others were prayed by families at home. And over the centuries, the most important and widely read poems were compiled together to be read or sung on special occasions. And I'm familiar with books of poetry, a large collection of the greatest poems in one place, and I can read through and pick my favorites. But the Book of Psalms isn't that kind of collection. Here, each poem has been expertly crafted and then placed where it is for a reason, to create a storyline from the book's beginning to its end. The Psalms poetically retell the entire biblical story, and they invite you into a literary temple. A literary temple? Yeah, so the tabernacle and then later the temple in Jerusalem were where ancient Israelites went to meet with God. When you arrived, you would see art and imagery everywhere. You'd see priests performing rituals. You'd hear songs and prayers, all of it symbolically proclaiming that your God rules the world from this mountain and you're in his living room. So the temple was a place to be in God's presence and also to immerse yourself in the story of God's kingdom. Exactly. And so try to imagine how traumatic it was when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, plundered and burned the temple, and then took many Israelites into exile. Yeah, where can they go now to meet with God, to sing their story and say their prayers? That's where the book of Psalms comes in. It's a prayer book for exiles designed as a virtual temple. You enter the Psalms to meet with God and to hear the entire biblical story of God's kingdom sung back to you in poetry. Cool, but how does the Psalms do it? Let's start with the book's design. There are 150 poems broken up into five clear sections. At the beginning, there's been placed a short introduction, Psalms 1 and 2, which lay out the main themes of the whole book by reviewing the biblical storyline. Okay. Psalm 1 looks back to the Garden of Eden and its river of life. Yeah, God placed humanity in a garden temple. And here, humans decide to define good and evil on their own terms, and so are exiled from the garden. But the first psalm paints a portrait of hope, about an upright human who delights in God's wisdom, which is called Torah, or instruction. This person is like the tree of life in the garden temple. They eternally blossom because they're planted in the river of God's life. Yeah, that's beautiful, but who's it supposed to be? Well, remember that story in Genesis? After humanity's foolish rebellion, God made a promise. Oh right, a future human, the seed of the woman who would come and defeat evil and restore the world. And that's what Psalm 2 is about. God's promise that a king would come from the line of David. He's called the Son of God and the Messiah. God appoints him to bring justice on human evil and to restore God's kingdom and peace over the nations. So Psalms 1 and 2 introduce all these main themes. Yes, and then the book develops those themes through the five sections. The first two explore the complicated story of David and his royal family. The third section focuses on the tragedy of Israel's exile and the downfall of David's royal line. But then the fourth and fifth sections rekindle the hope for the Messiah, a new temple, and God's kingdom on the other side of the exile. Then the book ends with a five-part conclusion, praising God for his faithfulness. Cool. Now, nearly half of the Psalms are connected to one guy, King David, who God chose to rule Israel. Yes, David's story is really important in this book. He experienced many times of hardship, but he trusted God with radical faith. And in these poems, David shares his fears, confesses his failures, and offers thanks to his Redeemer. And he's constantly speaking of a deep longing to be in God's presence in the temple. But wait, David lived before the temple was even built. Exactly. This portrait of David, hoping and praying for God's kingdom and a future temple, it resembles the hopes of the later generations of the exiles. 
And so David's prayers could become theirs as well. David's like a prayer coach, giving us words for how to pray and how to discover God's presence in good times and bad. Exactly. There are 73 poems connected to David, but most of the rest come from later generations of biblical poets, and they have learned to pray and hope like David. And so the end result is the book of Psalms, designed as a virtual temple for all generations of God's people. This isn't a kind of book you just read once and put down. No, it's designed for a lifetime of slow rereading and reflection. These prayers and laments and songs of praise are meant to become our own. They're poems for exiles who are learning to live by God's wisdom and to seek God's justice in the world as they hope for the coming Messiah and the kingdom of God. I am so grateful to the Bible Project for producing such magnificent work. Thank you guys so much for providing that. Now, as we heard, the Psalms invite us into an experience. We experience someone else's prayer life, and it serves or can serve as a guide for us as we ourselves pray. And as we move into this next portion, what I'm going to ask you to do is to pause. Maybe if there's distractions around you, if there's any way to remove those distractions. Take a big deep breath in. Deep breath out. What we're going to do now is we're going to listen to Psalm 44 read aloud. And as you hear the words of this ancient prayer song, See if you don't resonate with some of the phrases or lines that the songwriter or the prayer utters. See if perhaps God might even speak to you in this moment as his spirit uses the scripture to encourage and empower you. And so let's listen to Psalm 44 together now. Psalm chapter 44. For the choir director, a psalm of the descendants of Korah. Oh God, we have heard it with our own ears. Our ancestors have told us of all you did in their day, in days long ago. You drove out the pagan nations by your power and gave all the land to our ancestors. You crushed their enemies and set our ancestors free. They did not conquer the land with their swords. It was not their own strong arm that gave them victory. It was your right hand and strong arm and the blinding light from your face that helped them, for you love them. You are my king and my God. You command victories for Israel. Only by your power can we push back our enemies. Only in your name can we trample our foes. I do not trust in my bow. I do not count on my sword to save me. You are the one who gives us victory over our enemies. You disgrace those who hate us. Oh God, we give glory to you all day long and constantly praise your name. But now, you have tossed us aside in dishonor. You no longer lead our armies to battle. Make us retreat from our enemies and allow those who hate us to plunder our land. You have butchered us like sheep and scattered us among the nations. You sold your precious people for a pittance, making nothing on the sale. You let our neighbors mock us. We are an object of scorn and derision to those around us. 
You have made us the butt of their jokes. They shake their heads at us in scorn. We can't escape the constant humiliation. Shame is written across our faces. All we hear are the taunts of our mockers. All we see are our vengeful enemies. All this has happened though we have not forgotten you. We have not violated your covenant. Our hearts have not deserted you. We have not strayed from your path, yet you have crushed us in the jackal's desert home. You have covered us with darkness and death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread our hands in prayer to foreign gods, God would surely have known it, for he knows the secrets of every heart. But for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. Wake up, O oh Lord. Why do you sleep? Get up. Do not reject us forever. Why do you look the other way? Why do you ignore our suffering and oppression? We collapse in the dust, lying face down in the dirt. Rise up. Help us. Ransom us because of your unfailing love. Psalm 44 is an angry prayer. It's a prayer whose structure is kind of like it starts with, I love you, I trust you, God. And then as you go through, it pivots and it says things like, God, where are you? God, have you abandoned us? God, what is up? Why are all these hard things, these heinous things happening? Where are you? Are you even going to act? And Psalm 44 shows us a way forward as to how it is we could process our anger. It's an angry psalm. It's, in fact, one of the angriest, at least in my understanding. And so what is it that the songwriter or the prayer is angry at or angry about? So let's take a look together at the text. First, we'll look at verse uh, 14 through 16. So watch this. You may have heard this even in uh, the psalm as it was read aloud. You make us a joke among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. My disgrace is before me all day long and shame has covered my face because of the taunts of the scorner and reviler, because of the enemy and avenger. Now you can see in this text, right? The person, feel like, the person who's singing this song, who's praying this prayer is saying, I feel like a laughingstock. I feel disgrace. I feel shame. I hear the taunts of the scorner and the avenger and the reviler. Here you can see one of the reasons why this person is angry. They're angry because of what other people are doing. Now, this is not uncommon to our experience. In fact, I would just ask you, have you ever gotten really angry at someone else because of what they've done or because of what they didn't do? The answer is yes. In fact, I'm not sure that for many of us, a day goes by that we don't experience some sense of anger at other people. So what do we think about it? What do we do? How does this psalm guide us? So here the songwriter is insulted, mocked, offended. They're aghast at the behavior of others. 
Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt offended? Have you ever felt aghast at someone else's actions or words? Have you ever felt, felt ridiculed or mocked or scorned? You'll find a partner and one who can empathize with you in the author of Psalm 44. And so today we live in a cultural moment where anger seems to be everywhere. In fact, it seems to be getting worse, not better. For many of us, as we look into our family life, as we look into our own heart, as we look into the world, it seems like anger and outrage just seems to keep increasing. Uh, Scott Sauls, an author, uh, wrote a book called A Gentle Answer. And he said this, Outrage has become something we can't get away from, partly because we don't seem to want to get away from it. This is interesting. We form entire communities around our irritations and our hatreds. Sauls goes on to say, we warm ourselves next to the fire of digital hashtags, ideologically slanted news feeds, political slogans, and religious doctrines. And then, ready, aim, fire. This can also become a great way to build a platform to gain followers and fans and even earn some cash. Outrage sells. For our generation, hate has been commodified. It has been turned into an asset. Now, I think that Saul's is right on here in his assessment. As we look at uh, different uh, media outlets, as we look at different social platforms, you can see that usually what gets the most clicks is something that baits you in leveraging your anger. Anger has been commodified. In fact, there are many of us who build entire communities, fan bases around public individuals who say things that are wrought with anger but it's directed at people that we find ourselves angry at as well. As Saul says, it's a great way to build a platform. Anger is a great way to make some extra cash. And so living in this anger-filled cultural moment, where else might we find anger rearing its ugly head? Well, not just in public figures, but also in many of us. If you just look through your social media feed, if you're on social media, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, even Instagram, you will find that there are many in our community expressing anger. In fact, in our news outlets, anger seems to sell more than anything else. And I actually just want to pause right now and encourage you. You know, we're just a few months away from a national election here in America. And I've been getting in the mailbox giant postcards that are built to slander somebody in my community or in my nation. And it's meant to incite within me anger. Moreover, I'm watching, I'm seeing commercials. I'm even getting phone messages that are auto-recorded that are designed to slander somebody in my community or in my nation leveraging my anger to sway or influence how I vote, where I give my money, and things of the like. And moreover, if I turn on the television or I turn, I go to the internet and I just watch my favorite uh, news outlets, I discover that there's anger there as well. 
And when I do that, when I give myself over to that, that culture of anger, I find anger increasing within me. Maybe it's the same for you. In fact, one of the things that I have discovered is, is that for many of us that are Jesus followers, we allow ourselves to be discipled by Jesus for one, two, maybe three hours a week. And then we give the other 160 so odd hours over to fear mongering, anger leveraging disciple makers. We give ourselves over to news outlets or political pundits. We give ourselves over to authors that simply incite anger. And so my caution to us as a church family, especially in these weeks and months to come, we do not have to give our hearts over to the spirit of this age. We do not have to give our hearts over to fear-mongering. We can trust in the God who sees, the God who holds us together in the palm of his hand, the God who calls us to love and to love unconditionally, even in the midst of a culture and an age of outrage. However, there is righteous anger too. And you even see some of that in the psalm, right? The psalm writer is looking out and saying there are other things that are wrong. There's things that God says is angry. And the songwriter seems to be angry about those things as well. In fact, one of, the, one of the critical things that any one of us that are Jesus followers can do when we're experiencing anger is to ask this question. Is Jesus angry about this too? Is Jesus angry about this too? You know, I, for, for, for me, I find myself angry at a lot of things, especially when I feel insulted, when I feel offended, and it's rare that I find myself angry about the things that seems to make Jesus angry. And so it's a good check, at least on my heart. Perhaps it would be a good application for you as well. Why is this making me angry? Is a good question for anyone who experiences anger, rage, or outrage, or offense. Why? Why am I responding in this way? Maybe even if you're there right now, maybe you're angry at something I've just said. Maybe you're angry at something that you're seeing going on in your family or in your community. Even right now, pause and ask yourself, why am I angry about this? Why is this making me feel this way? And is Jesus angry about this too? Now, in the psalm, we find that the person is angry because of what other people are doing, but we also find something that may be even more uh, offensive to some of our modern sensibilities. Watch this. this is, uh, I think this is just absolutely fascinating. Watch what the psalm writer says, right? So verses 9 through 11. This, it, this psalm writer, this prayer is praying to whom? It's praying to God. Watch what he says. But you have rejected and humiliated us. You do not march out with our armies. You make us retreat from the foe. And those who hate us have taken plunder for themselves. Your hand, uh, you, excuse me, you hand us over to be eaten like sheep and scatter us among the nations. You, you, you. Do you see that in this prayer, this person who's experiencing profound anger as they're looking at what other people are doing and they're also looking at their own circumstances, 
They're extremely disappointed that God has not shown up in the way that they expected. God is not following through on his promises as the person who's writing the song, as the prayer expected him to. And so do you see how accusatory this is? You, 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 this is your fault, God. God, where are you? Do you see the anger directed not only at people, but primarily to God? The audacity of this guy, right? I mean, think for a moment. How is this in the Bible? Well, I think that God is inviting us into something more profound than our polished Pollyanna prayers. I think he's saying to us through Psalm 44, when you feel angry at others and when you feel angry at me, God says, bring it to me in prayer. I think that this is a profound and radical invitation by God for you to bring your anger, your rage, your outrage, your offense, bring it directly to him in prayer. Now watch, this psalm writer does not come with a polished, already processed set of emotions. In fact, this psalm writer is so accusatory, he even quotes, he, he, he does an inverse. I, I think he's doing something satirical here. Look at this. He says, you hand us over to be eaten like sheep. Now, if you're reading your Psalms, if you're in Psalm 44 and you turn in, if you have a print Bible, you turn to the left, or you go to some previous Psalms, you will see something like this. It's a, it's, a, it's a Psalm trusting in the Lord, Psalm 23. It says something like this, the Lord is my shepherd. And here, this Psalm writer is turning that on its head. It's actually satirizing that Psalm by saying, you're not a good shepherd, in fact, you have turned us over to be eaten like sheep. This is a raw, emotion-filled, angry prayer. And I think that God invites us, when we feel anger, rage, outrage, and offense, he invites us to bring it to him and to process it, even maybe out loud before him, in his presence, in prayer. Now, for many of us, this may feel like not okay. For many of us, we've been taught, right, you can't be angry at God or whatever. But I want you to see here that when we're disappointed in our circumstances, when we're raging at what we perceive to be injustices or offenses, God invites us to take that raw emotion and to take it before him in prayer. Now, here's the deal. I, I want to argue that that's perhaps the healthiest way to process your anger. Here's some other options that are like super unhealthy, but common among us and common in my own life too. When we feel anger, when we feel outrage, we ask ourselves the question, number one, how do I know if my anger is righteous? And we can ask ourselves the question, is Jesus angry about the same thing? At number two, we want to know how is it that we process our anger? What do we do with our anger? How do we move forward in a way that brings us flourishing and brings honor and glory to God and love to others? Well, here are the common options that we generally tend towards. Number one, we can attack our enemies, right? We see someone who's made us angry. We see someone who's offended us and we can attack. We can slander them. And listen, church family, this is so easy to give ourselves over to if we're not careful, especially in a season like right now. When, when we are angry, we can give ourselves permission to call each other names, to slander each other, to call into question one another's motives. Uh, just like these political ads that I'm getting in my mailbox, we seem to be 
uh, approving of, or at least co-signing this, this um, sin of slander and malice. And yet Jesus says in Matthew 5, 22, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, uh, raka, or which is an ancient insult, is answerable to the court. Anyone says, you fool, will be in danger of hellfire. Jesus himself says, hey, if you're going to go on the attack, slandering someone's character, calling them names, you are headed towards judgment. And these are strong words by Jesus. And I think he's saying this to alarm us that we might not give ourselves over to the spirit of the age, to a spirit of anger. Now, another way that we commonly process our uh, anger is we just yell at people. We yell at the people that we're angry. We yell at the people in our family. And Proverbs 29 says this, a fool gives full vent to his anger. A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise person holds it in check. Now, for some of us, we, we're not going to vent it out. We're not going to name call. We're just going to hold a grudge. We're going we're to nurture and nurse bitterness in our hearts. We're going to dwell on it. We're going to, uh, you know that thing, I'm, I'm sure some of you have done this, where you have the argument with the other person in your head a thousand times over and over and over again. And don't you find that when you have that argument with the person who's made you angry in your head, don't you always win the argument? I know that I do. And yet dwelling on it, holding a grudge, it, it, it may feel good for a while, but it simply leads to our own destruction. Ephesians 4 says, in your anger, do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Another way to put it is to settle your accounts quickly. Don't dwell on the anger. Still for others of us, we are tempted to bury it with drink or substances. Still others, we want to just rage out in the public square. We want to rage on social media. We want to slander. We want to accuse. We want to make sure everyone knows just how angry we are. And yet Titus 3 says this, Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy to all people. One of the ways, uh, things that I've um, found helpful is to just pause for a moment before I post something or before I send that email, before I say something publicly. And it's a little sing-songy, but I think that it works for us. Before unleashing your rage in the public square, process your anger before God in prayer. Before we take it to a public audience to express our outrage and our anger, before we do that, and there may be times where we need to do that, especially when we think about righteous anger. But before we do that, before we take our rage to express it in the public square, we need to take our anger and process it before God in prayer. I'd encourage you to do that anytime that you feel anger. And still others of us are feeling like, well, I never have explosive behavior like that. I don't say nasty things. I don't go online and do that. But there may be some of us who not only bury it deep, we simply become passive aggressive. And while we don't say things directly out loud, we harbor that hardness in our heart and that anger. And we subtly work against those who we consider to be uh, those who have offended us, those who have made us angry. Colossians 3 says this, rid yourselves of all such things, such as anger, 
malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And so these common options, they only lead to more destruction and pain. And so we can take the psalm writer's model and process our anger before God in prayer. That literally looks like just taking however it is that we feel and saying it to God. For many of us, it means saying it out loud and allowing him to do the work on us as we process it in his presence. If you're going to rage, if you're going to express your anger, first express it to God through prayer. He can handle it. He's not surprised by it. You're not... He's not aghast. He already knows how you feel. You're not expressing these things to inform him. You're expressing them. He's inviting you into this process so that he can do something on you. Now, how do we get the strength and the power to do this, right? So Psalm 44 actually doesn't really like totally help us. As I read Psalm 44, I get to the end and I'm like, ah, you, you got something else for me? Like, give me some encouragement. Help me move forward. And I think that when we take a bigger view of the scripture, we find some profound encouragement. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, there is an individual. He was a pastor. He actually had started his life as someone who's antagonistic against Jesus. But he had a radical, profound experience with Jesus. He felt the overwhelming grace and love of God made known to us through Jesus Christ. And he became a pastor, a Christian pastor. And in so doing, he, would, he, he traveled around much of the known world, spreading the good news of Jesus, but he also endured much pain, ridicule, suffering. He had a thousand reasons to feel offended and angered by what other people are doing. And he had a thousand reasons to be offended and angered at his circumstances, what he might think God was doing. But he recognized something profound, and it's something that we can recognize here as we close our time together. That regardless of what other people are saying, right, the, the anger-inducing things that people are saying, regardless of what they say, there is nothing that they can say or do that will separate us from the love of God. Moreover, there is no circumstance. There is no life station or circumstance that could separate us from the love of God. And this individual, this, this pastor, his name was Paul, and even though he knew firsthand what it was like to experience much of what the psalm writer was experiencing, right? Devastation, pain, ridicule, humiliation, wondering, is God going to show up? I'm in these miserable circumstances. In Romans 8, he actually quotes Psalm 44. But watch what he says. As it is written, so this is Paul now, right? As a person who knows what it's like to suffer. Watch what he does. As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are being counted, or excuse me, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Do you remember in Psalm 44, it seems to be meant as a satire against the uh, famous Lord is my shepherd phrase. But here you see Paul actually picks up the satire and he turns it and he points us to Jesus. Watch what he says. no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am persuaded. Now watch what he says here, right? So remember, what are the things that make us angry? It's other people's offensive behaviors or statements or injustices, or it's the negative circumstances we find ourselves in. Watch what he says. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, powers, height, depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so two things here. Number one, when we feel angry, the way to process that in a way that leads to our flourishing, the glory of God and love for others is to first take our anger and process it before God in prayer. That could be anger at what other people are doing. could be anger at our circumstances. It could be anger at God. And we process that before God in prayer, but we do so on a bedrock of this truth that nothing, no circumstance, no slander, no accusation, no reviling, no nothing, nothing in this created universe can ever, ever, ever separate us from the love of God made known to us through Jesus Christ. As we go before the throne room of God and process our anger and our raw emotions before him in prayer, we do so knowing that he calls us his beloved son and daughter. He's inviting us in not to ridicule us, not to cast shame or guilt or doubt onto us, but to bring to us healing and peace and flourishing. Jesus loves you so much and he is nearer to you than you are to yourself. Church family, as we experience anger and go before God to process that anger in prayer, I know that he will never leave you or forsake you. He is with you always and he wants for you your joy and your healing, and your flourishing. Let me pray for us. Lord, in this season of such pain and confusion and anger, it is easy for us to give ourselves over to outrage and anger. And we can use that anger oftentimes to justify things like malice and slander and holding a grudge and uh, seeking our own vengeance. And so, Lord, we pray Lord, we pray that you would empower us to turn from that, to turn to you. We repent of our unrighteous anger and our outrage, and we turn to you. And Lord, we ask that day by day, moment by moment, you would empower us to live in light of this truth, knowing that we can come before you with anything that we're angry about, that you are ready, willing, and able to receive it, and that in that process of praying our anger, you will bring about our flourishing and peace. Jesus, we love you. We ask these things knowing that you love us and you're powerful to bring them about. And we entrust ourselves to you. It's in your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen.